Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, my name is Robin. I'm an alcoholic. Um, this is my first time being asked to speak, so I'm glad that I don't know most of you. Um, so, um, I guess uh, uh, I would be categorized as a high-bottom alcoholic, uh, but I don't want you to think that that means that I didn't, like, piss myself, because I totally did, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah, and um, I... Uh, the reason I think I'm a high bottom that I stopped before the consequences got really serious, uh, is that my upbringing, um, I had parents who were children of very low bottom alcoholics and my dad was a secret alcoholic. And, uh, so I was just raised with alcoholism as this kind of boogeyman, uh, in my household. So, um, I always knew like what all the landmarks of alcoholism were before I even had my first drink. Um, and yeah, I, uh, didn't really start drinking heavily until after college. Um, but I always had all of the isms. Like I was a weird kid. Um, like I feel like, um, a lot of the time people say in AA that they always felt different from everybody. I think I definitely was like, (laughs) I was like, um, diagnosed with ADHD and, uh, generalized anxiety disorder and I had this weird like Tourette syndrome offshoot where I repeated everything that I said twice and uh so like there was like some weirdness as a child and uh that I reacted to that by isolating a lot and um not you know I just treated my isms without alcohol for a long time so you know yeah, isolating, watching movies and that sort of thing. Uh, and then after college, I ended up, uh, having a series of panic attacks, which, um, just sort of led me to alcohol. And, uh, I was living in New York and, um, which is a great place to get started drinking. And, um, I, uh, basically, you know, once I started drinking heavily, I realized that I was so much more social and I liked people and I was hanging out with people and, uh, it just sort of, and I wasn't like taking everything really personally as as much because I was drunk, and um, uh, but it really quickly progressed, and um, uh, like really quickly, and uh, by like twenty five, I'm thirty one now. By twenty five, I was uh, totally aware of the fact that I was an alcoholic, like because I knew the definition, and I just you know like I would hit each mark and be like, okay, like I'm drinking alone, check, and like I'm you know missing work check and I'm like alienating people and uh but I was just kind of like it doesn't matter enough you know like I have this solution that's working for me better than anything else has so I'm gonna stick with it and uh then um you know but then it was progressive and gradually got worse and worse and uh that was I mean I'd been thinking about going to AA for a long time but it took me probably three years to actually step in the door and um uh, I actually be a year, so I've, I'll have nine months on Monday if all goes as planned. And, um, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, I think, um, 
uh, it was like almost exactly a year before I came in and actually tried it out. I went to a few meetings. I fucking hated it. <laughs> like I was like totally uncomfortable and it was like socially so weird and uh and I really bucked against the religion aspect or you know the spirituality aspect. Like it just bummed me out and um uh and it was really all I could focus on uh, during those meetings. And um, so then when I came in for real, uh, the reason I came in for real, like the kind of final push was that I was trying to do like only drinking on weekends. And I had tried that so many times before, but I was like, this time, like if I can't stick to this, then that's it. I'm going to AA. And then I remembered that I had said that to myself like 40 times. <laughs> and so uh that I just I went at that point and um and I spent the first thirty days just like dwelling so hard on the the spirituality piece. Um, every time someone said God, I was just like, and uh, <laughs> I um tried some atheist meetings and uh, then ended up finding a sponsor who was sort of like minded and she didn't let me progress through the steps until I'd really gotten a grasp of how I was going to work my program with my beliefs or lack thereof and uh so we spent a long time on the second and third step and we went through we agnostics like so slowly and just like talked about what worked for us and what didn't and um it was really helpful for me to to talk to somebody who was pretty open about her her doubts and um at this point I think that I feel like I I have spiritual growth regardless of what you call it and so if some people want to call that god that's cool and I sort of call it something else and then uh so my higher power is a group of drunks and then um if I need like a face to it like if I'm reading something where it's like talking about like an actual entity um of God I use divine the drag queen from from John Waters movies uh, <laughs> there's a whole story behind that but it's kind of gross so I'll leave it out <laughs> um, and um <laughs> So so she actually, even though my sponsor is an atheist, she still had me pray. She still had me do all of the things that, that we do. And um, and I still found relief in that, like, praying. Because that was where Divine really came in, where, like, it was hard for me just to, like, talk at nothing. But, like, to sort of visualize, like, this painted face, it sort of helped. And, uh, I, you know, I won't say what I prayed about, but it was, like, it, it, it was, like, a moment of self-knowledge and re reflection that I sort of realized like that I had a lot to work on in terms of self-esteem and and uh like inner turmoil and um yeah so that that was that piece and then um I think another thing coming into AA that's been really helpful for me is um somebody said the other day like uh don't compare your insides to other people's outsides and uh that has been kind of a huge piece of this program for me is just hearing other people's experience and other people's pain and other people's <clears throat> discomfort and realizing that that's not just me and uh, that we're all sort of coping with the human condition and some of us choose less functional ways to deal with that than others or some of us are like less equipped to deal with it than others and uh, um, that's been just kind of eye-opening for me um, because you know, growing up weird and growing up easily embarrassed and growing up sort of shy, like, it was uh, easy to just assume that that was just just me. Um, 
And then, uh, let's see what else. Um, I guess, uh, like, being, um, not just with the fourth step, but even before I got to that, um, I felt kind of immediate relief. It was sort of a catharsis, um, figuring out how to be honest with myself about my own flaws and my own, you know, defects, uh, because I had um, such a defensive knee-jerk reaction. I still do. I work on it. But, like, a defensive knee-jerk reaction to when someone, um, like, does something that I perceive as a criticism um, or if I sort of know deep down that I fucked up about something, um, I, I think um, it was like I had to deny that completely and there was so much energy, so much mental energy like spent just pushing down the possibility that I might be wrong or I might have done something stupid. And I think that's partly like my fucked up thinking <laughs> that I think that uh, if I did one thing wrong, that means I do everything wrong. And if I... Um, if I'm wrong about one thing, that means I'm stupid. And if I'm, uh, if I can't do this one thing, then I can't do anything. And it's just like this thinking in absolutes that happens sort of across the board for me. And, uh, so finding that gray area has been, has been really good for me. Um, yeah, so I'm still on the sixth and seventh step, um, partly because we took a really long time on the second and third, and partly because I'm a procrastinator, which is, um, <laughs> one of my defects. And, uh, but it's coming along, and um, uh, and just in sobriety, I feel like I've done a lot. Like, you know, life keeps happening, and it's like, you know, for the first, like, 30, 60 days, I felt like I could just, like, not do anything except go to meetings and go to work and just sort of, uh, like, cruise by on that, and then, you know, life keeps happening. And so each thing that I experience, like, um, you know, having to go to a wedding or going to a birthday party at a bar or, you know... Uh, like any sort of social anything or like sex and dating like it's sort of everything totally terrifying and uncomfortable and then sort of once I get through it and realize that it's not the end of the world then uh and then I can have fun uh then it's like um totally affirming and made me realize that alcohol was not like the reason that I could do all the things that I did in my life but just the way that I chose to make it happen. But, yeah. um, that's all I got. Thanks. Now I'd like to turn the meeting over to our main speaker, Paul. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Paul. I'm grateful to be here. I'm going to blow your eardrums out. Um, I thank Trevor for asking me to share, um, and I appreciate um, his persistence in getting me over here. Uh, I'm uh, from San Francisco. It's the first time I've been to this meeting, but I've heard about it, so I was always anxious to come here, so I, I appreciate being here. Um, uh, I identify, a couple people identified as an, as an addict also. I, I identify not only as an alcoholic, but as an addict. My sponsor tells me if you're going to identify as everything Paul, tell him you're an idiot also, because you are. Um, so I'm an idiot. Um, but he does say that when I'm in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I should focus on my disease of alcoholism. He said, they'll figure the rest of it out as you share, Paul. Um, 
So I uh, I got here. I I, uh, I smoked cocaine alcoholically for a number of years. <laughs> I I wanted to learn how to smoke coke as a as a normal person did. And I was unable to do so. So I decided to find myself here with you good people. Um, so I I um, I was born and raised in San Francisco and um, in a little neighborhood out in the Mission called St. Mary's Park and. And, you know, I, I, I had, a, I don't know, a pretty normal childhood. You know, I, I you know, Irish Catholic family living in an Irish Catholic neighborhood. They'd lived there for over 100 years and a bunch of kids were my age in the 60s growing up there. And um, we um, drank and used at an early age. I mean, it, 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 I didn't feel different or not part of. I, I felt very much part of the, the team or the club or the gang or whatever we mm-hmm. called ourselves. But we really identified uh, with where we lived. And in San Francisco, your neighborhood was a big deal, and and we identified with St. Mary's Park, and 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 we were we were drinkers and users, and it was just kind of like a rite of passage. The kids older than us did it at a certain age, and then we did it at a certain age. The kids younger than us did it after us, and so it wasn't it wasn't anything where I had a revelation or or thought that I had to do this. Uh, I, I we just all did it. And um, everybody did it that I knew, and and we had a, there was a large you know group of of uh, young people that lived there, and I, I mean there may have been kids my age that weren't drinking and using in San Francisco, but I never met them. You know, everybody was on something, and um, and and so that was okay. I mean, it was just kind of normal. It was the way it, it way it went. So um, I um, the, the 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 problems for me started because I started drinking. I was about eleven or twelve, you know, and it was maybe a little bit early, um, but. Uh, what I immediately liked about alcohol was the effect. And, and in the doctor's opinion it talks about, you know, we, we most alcoholics drink for the effect of alcohol. And, and I absolutely identify with that. I was never a guy for taste. I didn't give a shit what Heineken tasted like. You know, the red wine we drank, I wasn't worried about the bouquet. I can tell you that it was, uh, Red Mountain, uh, was, uh, uh, 75 cents for a quarter of Red Mountain wine. Um, we drank, I drank MD 2020, Mogan David, you know, that, that should, should be on uh, the list of, uh, hallucinogenics, that stuff. You know, that's a wine that never saw a grape. I can tell you that. <laughs> but I mean, so we drank for the effect, you know, and, 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 and that's what we did. And, and, um, it wasn't so bad as long as you, 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 um, uh, you know, did what you were supposed to do, which in that age was go to school and not get thrown out. And, and not get in trouble with the cops too much. And, and, you know, back then, or at least for me, getting in trouble with the cops was they just brought you home, you know, and your father had to pay for the damage you did. And, you know, I, 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 I got in fights and broke into places and wrecked cars and did all that stuff. And, and really, there wasn't any direct consequence to me uh, because of where I lived and who, who my family was. So I didn't realize some of the consequences other people felt early on. But but so I, I, I developed this thing where if I um, if I went to school and, and didn't get thrown out, I felt I was entitled to do whatever I wanted to do on weekends. And, and, and that's what I did. And, you know, weekends kind of expanded as I grew older, you know, it started, it was just Friday and Saturdays. And, and then it became Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday was added on because there was always football to watch or something. And then we started to call, um, Wednesday, gateway to the weekend. So you could go out Wednesday night and Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday. And, um, and then what we talked about was when we were trying to give up booze, we'd go on the wagon during the week, which meant you wouldn't drink on Monday and Tuesday unless there was a Monday night football game, at which point then you should not drink on Tuesday. Um, and so, I mean, we were doing, I was doing this when I was in grammar school. 
I mean, talking about going on the wagon. Um, and part of it was because we saw our parents doing it. But um, I um, managed to, uh, I went to, you know, I, uh, Catholic parochial grammar schools, high school, um, and uh, just with like-minded people. All we wanted to do was get loaded. And, and you know, I guess in, 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 in my experience, all I wanted to do was get loaded. I mean, I didn't want to get high. I didn't want to see another level of consciousness. I didn't want to find God. I just wanted to get loaded. And when I was loaded, I felt okay. And 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 that's kind of was my story. I, I just, you know, it helped me out. I, I didn't worry about stuff. I didn't care about stuff. And uh, and I was a lot better looking when I was loaded. Um, but, um, <laughs> but um, so I developed this thing. So I, I felt I was entitled to do it. And that worked for me through grammar school, worked through high school, worked through college. And, and I, I, I graduated from college and I couldn't find a job. So I went to law school. And, uh, and it really kicked in in law school because I, I, I would go to school uh, and I felt like if I was doing this and it was kind of difficult because they made you read books, which I didn't like to do. And um, uh, then I got loaded, you know, and, and, uh, and on Thursday, Friday, Saturdays and Sundays. And um, part of the deal for me was I, um, I, I uh, when I was in grammar school, my, I went to a, a summer school out on Stanion and, um, and Fulton. Uh, 1967, and, and, and the big thing was my mother would drive me and another guy out there, and then we had to find our way home. And, and the summer of 1967, I walked down uh, Stanion Street to Hay Street and, and uh, saw what was going on there, and it was a lot different than what I was doing where I was growing up. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on I hadn't experienced yet, and I got to tell you, I liked what they had and wanted to be part of that. So I started hanging out down there. And the interesting thing was the guy I was with that day absolutely did not want any part of that and, and ran the other way. And so I started hanging out down there on weekends and uh, hanging out with a, you know, a band. I didn't like their music. I, I sort of screechy, you know, I don't really, uh, but I liked what they had. And so, <laughs> taken. And, and so I started hanging out with these guys. And, and then as they, they maybe got popular and, and, and I was in law school, so they'd be at Winterland. I'd go to Winterland three nights in a row and, and just get loaded, you know, and, and a lot of times I wouldn't even go out and hear the music, you know, I was just sitting in the back, just wasted, you know, and that was what I wanted to do. So, um, not a great existence, but that's what I did. And, uh, you know, after I, I, I started working in, I graduated from law school, I started working in a, a career as a lawyer. And again, I felt like this thing was, you know, there was some challenges to it and it was difficult. And so I was entitled to do what I wanted on my own time. And that was to get loaded. And, um, I, I had some consequences. There was a younger partner in the, in the firm. I was just an associate, the new guy, the young guy. And, and, uh, we went out drinking one night and he left his briefcase in the office. So we went back up to the 27th floor of one California street to get it. And, and as we opened the door, he pushed me in, he shoved me and, uh, I beat him to a pulp in the reception area of our law firm. And here was a guy that was essentially my employer. I beat him up. I beat him up so bad. I wrecked the, the lobby, you know, they had the ship in the bottle, that got shattered, you know, and uh, uh, the, the it was, he was so loud yelling, the security guard came up from the lobby up to the 27th floor to break it up. And so, you know, I, I, I knew that I was going to have a real consequence there, and, and, and there was a Tiffany lamp that was, you know, wrecked, and all the books were out, and, and the next day I came in, and I was sheepishly, I was just going to give my resignation, and the managing partner called me in, he said, hey, I, I, I know what happened last night. 
And he said, hey, I just want to let you know, boys will be boys. There will be no, don't worry about that. <laughs> Again, it fueled me, fueled me. I'm okay, you know, that I'm okay. And I went outside and the Tiffany lamp was bent back over. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> but, um, but so, but so what, I, I, I didn't have a lot of consequence. So then I, 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 you know, I saw my friends get married, so I got married. Didn't give a lot of thought to it. A gal I knew from growing up, you know, and uh, didn't have any understanding or idea what it was like to be a, a husband or a partner or a father, but but just kind of dove into it. So, um, you know, we quickly had a couple kids. Um, again, my alcoholism just, you know, was right there with me. I I didn't have a great relationship with my father, Irish Catholic father-son thing was weird for me, you know, it was a lot of competition, he never called me my name, all my life he called me boy, and uh, it always bothered me, you know, and I thought it was demeaning to me, and I had talked to my mother about it one time, I said, that really bothers you, because you should tell your father, and he was kind of a larger-than-life character, and I, I, I worked up the courage one day, and I said, Dad, I, I want you to call me Paul, not boy anymore, and he said, sure, boy, and uh, he just couldn't call me by the right name, and, and so I had a lot of problems with my father. I really wanted to have a different relationship with my sons, I, 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 my kids. I really wanted to be a father that had a, I had a relationship with their kids. And yet when my wife went to give birth uh, for our first child, um, I didn't make it. I was in a bar. And she, she uh, was working. She was already overdue, you know, being pregnant. And, uh, and it was Christmas Eve. And, and I went to my office and then went out with a bunch of guys drinking, you know, after working in a bar. And I finally kind of came to and. So, shit, it's like 6 o'clock. I, I, I think we're having dinner at her mother's house. So I call up to Christmas Eve, and I said, hey, she there? And her mother said, no, try the hospital, and slammed down the phone on me. And I called the hospital, and she had checked herself in. And so I, I raced out there in a cab, and she said, to her, you know, she was in labor, and, and, and her uh, lips were chapped. And I said, it was Children's Hospital on California Street, down Laurel Village. And, and I said, wait right there, I'll go get you some chapstick. And I ran up the block, and there was a bar up the block called Shadow Box. And I went in the Shadow Box, and I, I had my little green gown on and the hat, you know, and they and said, I want to buy shots for everybody. My wife's on a big guy. He goes, hey, man, we're not serving you. You know, your wife's in the hospital. You should be down there with her. And I walked out of the bar. I tore my stuff off, threw it in the shrubs, and went back in and told them, well, you got to serve me. I'm not going back to the hospital. And I sat there, and I drank. And... Uh, Came back and my wife had given birth to our first son. And it's something I have a lot of shame and guilt over. I did. I still do. Um, you know, I still hear about it a lot from her. Um, there was a famous football player, uh, Taylor, uh, from the New York Giants. And, uh, you know, his wife divorced him. He beat her up. And one of the big things that she said was wrong was he was out drinking with his friends when, when she gave birth to their child. My wife cut that article out of the paper and put it on a refrigerator for 10 years. I think sat there. And, uh, Lawrence Taylor was the guy's name. Yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, that's just one example of my alcoholism and my fear because I didn't know how to be a father. I didn't know how to go through childbirth. So I just avoided it by drinking and being drunk. Um, my second son was born and, and, um, my wife was having a big baptism. We were having a big baptism. You know, it's a big thing in our culture. You have that. And um, uh, my uncle's a Jesuit priest, going to say do the baptism. And then she has 80 people coming over to our house for lunch after. And I didn't make it. I, I didn't come home from the night before. I was out for three days. And, and so she did it by herself. And, and I got to tell you, I can remember right now that driving down that street to my house on that Tuesday, and um, 
park in the car, look at him, there was a moving van in front of the house. And and I I said, shit, she's moving out. And my first thought was, I hope she takes the kids with her because I can't raise them. And and so I parked the car and I went in the house and I found out that my wife wasn't moving out. I was. She had the moving van packing up all my stuff. And she's kicking me out of the house. Um, and, and that was another example of my of my alcoholism. It's something I wanted to do, but I had some fear over it. I felt uncomfortable. And and I didn't know how to deal with the uncomfort, so I drank. Um, you know, but my alcoholism got the better of me. You know, it talks about in the book about going over the invisible line and, and you know, I, I did. You know, I, I, I can't tell you the day or the or the hour that I did, but I know I did. Um you know, it got to the point where I was drinking and using every day and um I mean, there was another one instance where I, um, so she, when the kids were young, she would get up, so we had a third child, so a third boy, and, and she'd get up and she'd go to these parenting classes where you take your children with you to, to the, and you learn how to have a good relationship with your children. And she invited me so at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning. I said, not a chance. I can't do that. And I'd get up around 11 on Saturdays and she'd be gone. And, um, and so I would, you know, do what I did, which is start drinking and using, knowing that I had till six o'clock that night. I had the house to myself. And so one night or one day I'm down there and it's about 11 o'clock and Saturday morning I get up and I've got the pipe and the everything going. I mean, my, the living room looked like John Bellucci's dressing room, you know, <laughs> and, and the front door opens and it's my wife and three kids standing there. Uh, and, and I had the music so loud, I didn't even hear him come in. I just saw him standing there. It was like one of those moments. Like, wow. And she goes, what are you doing? And I looked at her and I go, I'm partying. <laughs> she said, Paul, the party was over 10 years ago. <laughs> and, and I was asked to leave the house. And, 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 and so, you know, I really wanted to have a family. And I really wanted to, to I, I really, that was a big deal to me. And, and I said, I'll, I'll quit drinking and using. And she said, I don't think you can. And, 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 um, I did, um, and, and so, but I did it without the benefit of a program of recovery. And I got to tell you, it was miserable. I, I, um, I couldn't do it. I was, I was tied up in knots every day. I mean, and I, I didn't drink or use for nine plus years. And, and, but what happened was I had no way to deal with my emotions. I had not grown up. I'd started drinking when I was like 10 or 11 and had never felt any emotion. You know, I, I, I never knew how to deal with frustration. I didn't know how to do life I, at all. And um, so the result of, of all of that was I really just had kind of two emotions that were constant in my life. And, and one was frustration when I didn't get my way. And the second was rage. And, and it came out almost every day. And so, you know, my kids, I, I, I was a lousy father to my kids when, 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 I, when I was drinking because I wasn't there. And I had no emotional support for them at all. As they told me after, it was worse when I gave up drinking because I was so emotionally abusive to them and I was there. And that's, I, I, I got to tell you, I'm still dealing with that today. So um, the other thing that it really had a negative impact on was my career because I had a hard time being a lawyer and dealing with the frustration. If things didn't go my way, I got violent. And, and, and so I had a couple instances, one where, I was, you know, working downtown in the financial district, three-piece suit, driving a fancy car, and I pull some guy out of a car on Montgomery Street and pummel him over a parking space. 
and, and my suit, you know, and, and the cops arrested me. It was a big brouhaha in the middle. Of, they closed Montgomery Street because they thought I was, you know, nuts, which I probably was, but, um, you know, and had the taser gun and all this other crap, you know, and uh, so I had to go to anger management. Um, and then the second one that happened for me was I was in court in San Francisco, and I was, I was trying a case, and, and the defendant was on the stand, and he was lying. I had this contract that showed that he was lying. He refused to accept that he was lying. And I got really frustrated, and I attacked him in the, in the courtroom on the stand. He jumped up and said, you're lying. Not funny now. Wasn't that funny then, I tell you that. Uh, and, 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 and the bailiffs got me with the baton, you know, choking me out to get me out. And, and so I went into the judge's chambers while he declared a mistrial. And, um, uh, and, and, and he said, Paul, what are you? he knew my family. I mean, I've known this guy all my life. He, he went to college with my dad. He goes, what are you doing? I go, the guy's lying, judge. He said, I know he's lying. That's my job, not yours, to beat it out of him. And back in anger management again. And, and I guess the point I'm trying to make was that, that, that without alcohol and without any program of recovery, my life was miserable. I mean, it was going downhill faster than what it was when I was drinking and using. And, and so kind of what, what happened for me was after nine plus years, I, I got into traveling and being in the mountains. And we came back from a, doing a mountain climb in Peru, and I was with a group of people in Lima. And, uh, and so we go in this restaurant, and everybody's pretty happy. And, and the lady comes over, and she goes, what do you want to order? And, and, and would you like to try the national drink of, of uh, Peru as a, uh, as a Pisco Sour? Mm-hmm. And and uh, I said, well, I would like to. Yeah, what's in that? And the lady sitting next to me goes, he can't have one of those. He's an alcoholic. And I said, what? And I said, I'm not. I never said I was an alcoholic. She goes, we haven't been able to drink in ten years. <laughs> and I said, it doesn't make me an alcoholic. And I said, bring me one of those drinks. And and um, you know, I'd never gotten the step one part. I didn't even know about step one, but I knew I, I didn't have it. And so um, these people, to their credit, said, if you're going to do that, we're not going to stick around and watch you. And they all get up and, and left the restaurant, and I sat there and had 12 Pisco Sours in a row. And uh, then went out and found the tenderloin of Lima, Peru, and got the rest of what I used to do. Um, and, and so I came back to San Francisco, and my life just circled the drain. You know, it, it talks about in the book as the disease of progressive. And it, for me, it's progressive in, in two ways. One is, is that I use and take more to try and chase that same effect that I originally got. The second part of the progression of the disease for me was my conduct, that I, I put myself in, in very injurious places, perilous situations with people I shouldn't in order to try and chase that same high and feeling that I gotten before. And um, just really bad, bad situations, and I, and I shouldn't have done that. I, I, I thought at that point that I had a moral failing, that I was weak, that I was going to go, you know, I... I Grew up Catholic, and the whole Catholic thing for me is, you know, I, I had violated or broke nine of the Ten Commandments by the time I was 12. You know, so I knew I was going to hell under that face. Um, I hadn't killed anybody yet, but the rest of it I had done. Um, and so um, I had no concept of what spirituality was other than I was doomed. I was damned. And um, and and now I, I really felt like I was just an immoral, weak individual. I didn't know I had a disease. And so that continued for a while. And I tried to quit. You know, I tried to quit so many times. My, my, one of my big things was I was always going to quit on the first of the month. <laughs> what I was going to do, I was going to quit June 1, February 1, September. It was always the first of the month. And that, that way it allowed me to drink for the rest of the month I was in. 
you know, and, and then when that first week of that month came, the first came, I always believed I made a decision not to, to, to go through with it, to drink that day. And it was always something like, shit, I forgot 4th of July is in July and, uh, or St. Patrick's Day is in March. And, and as soon as I started giving myself that, that reservation, that excuse, I drank. And, and I didn't realize at the time it was the disease. I just thought, again, it was a lack of willpower. I did all kinds of things. You know, we talk about the, uh, the things we did switch from beer, brandy to beer and all. I, um, I quit for like three days and, and, and I was going to go out of the country. And, and so I, I flew it. I was in Europe and I said, well, why should you, I should be able to drink when I'm out of the United States. And because what trouble can I get out of the U.S.? So I drank for two weeks in Europe. I came back. And, and, um, I had to travel for work to Chicago. And so I went to Chicago and I thought, well, you know, really, if I'm just out of the state of California, I should be able to drink because that's far enough away from where all my bad stuff is. So I drank in Chicago. The next weekend I was home and I went to a, a wedding in Fresno. And I said, well, if I'm in Fresno, you should be able to drink. <laughs> and by the time I drove home on Sunday, I was just back to drinking all the time, you know, so I, I had no defense against the first drink. Um, I, I, I flew to India. To, to, to go to an ashram because I figured that's what I needed was some help spiritually. And um, I, I flew all the way over there drinking and using and, and uh, flew into New Delhi and took a train out to Rajasthan and, and, and got on the, in the, in the ashram. And, uh, and 12 hours later, I was sitting on the roof of this place watching the sunset. And it came to me that I got to get out of here and go home and get some stuff. And, and I got back on the train all the way to New Delhi. I uh, flew back to San Francisco. I was in India for less than 24 hours. <laughs> 24-hour flight each way. Um, you know, I could go on and on. I, I rented a house in Hawaii uh, to kick and, and, and uh, uh, by myself over in Kauai, a beautiful cottage overlooking the ocean. Why I felt I needed that, I don't know. But I went over there and I, I used all the way over and drank all the way over. They didn't, they wouldn't rent me a rental car. I mean, that's how loaded I was, you know, and they'll give anybody a rental car, you know, but I take a cab to this cottage and, and, and then I, I, I flushed everything and, and poured the booze out and, and uh, spent the next four days, you know, vomiting and diarrhea and everything we do and drinking, uh, Avion water and special K, you know, and it was brutal. It was, I'd done it before. I hated it. I really hate that feeling. And, and on the fifth day, I went, I felt okay enough to walk around the little compound where the house was. On the sixth day, I went out and actually went to a restaurant and had a meal. On the seventh day, I flew home. And on the eighth day, I was using and drinking again in San Francisco. I had no defense. So what happened for me was I, um, I, I, um, my life was just terrible. It was, it was brutal. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I had enough money. I didn't need to work, but I mean, I still work. People hated me at work. I hated them. I fired people every time I went to the office, you know, and, uh, it was just an ugly, ugly existence. And I mean, what happened was two things really. My, my, my wife called me. She goes, you got to help your son. I caught him smoking marijuana and, and he was smoking pot. And I got to tell you, I did not want the same disease to happen on my kids that happened to me. I really didn't want them to have the same situation I was in. I, 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 I'd give almost anything for that. And she said, you got to talk to him. And, and I couldn't talk to him. I, I felt like a complete hypocrite because how was I going to talk to him about smoking weed when I was on everything but roller skates every day? You know, and, and so um, I just couldn't do it. But it was really, really heavy. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I, I it was really hard. Um, I, I, that's my bottom. You know, that was my bottom. And, and, and the other thing that happened that time is my, my brother, younger brother, youngest brother got in trouble, 
you know, drunk drivings and you know, a number of them right in a row. And anyway, so I got him into a treatment center because he needed to go to a treatment center. I was great at helping other people, you know, but uh, couldn't help myself. And so he got out of the treatment center. He's living in an SLE down in, in East San Jose. And, and, you know, this wasn't the place with the tennis court and the swimming pool. It was a converted Craig and auto parts store and had the barbed wire fence around it, you know, a, a cinder block building. And I go down there and, and uh, their, their play area was the asphalt parking lot with a barbed wire fence around it. You know, it looked more like an institution than anything. But and I'd see him. I'd say, George, how you doing? He goes, man, I'm doing good. And I said, good. I said, your wife's divorcing you. You lost your job. You're facing two felons. How can you be doing good? He goes, I'm doing good. I go, what are they giving you to take? And he said, no, man, I'm not, they're not taking anything. I go, they must be putting it in your food, man. You look good. <laughs> and he told me, because I'm working the 12 steps. And I got to tell you, that wasn't lost on me because I'm driving home in a fancy car and I got every apparatus to take stuff and put stuff in my body I can. And I'm miserable thinking I'm better off dead than I am doing it this way. And here's my brother with all these problems facing him and living in that situation, and he's happy. And and to me, that there was a, there was something different there. I saw in him something that I wanted. And so, you know, I had that moment of grace where I picked up the phone one day and I called the treatment center I got him in, and I and I asked for an appointment. I went over there. And the lady was great. You know, the intake lady, they have no judgment, which I'm not used to. People have been telling me, you know, I was an alcoholic and addict for decades, you know, and... um so I went in there and she made me take the 20 questions. And, and I got to tell you, I was never much of a student at all. And I got a hundred percent on that exam. I got 20 out of 20 correct. And, and she didn't say, you know, God, you're really fucked up. She said, I think you qualify for one of our programs. So it was like, I won a prize. And I go, great. And to tell you how little I knew about recovery, she said, what are you thinking about in terms of our program? We have all these various programs, outpatient, intensive, inpatient. And I said, well, uh, this was in 2009 in August. I said, uh, Labor Day's coming up, uh, and I said, um, I'd like a three-night program over Labor Day weekend. And, and to her credit, she didn't say, you idiot, there's no three-night program. She goes, why don't we just get started, and, and we'll see how it goes. And I said, okay. And, and she goes, now, when, when would you like to start? You know, and I was thinking again, first next month. Um, and she said, well, Paul, we have a program starting now. It's actually starting today. It's actually starting in an hour. Do you want to do that? And I got to tell you, I had that moment of grace from God that I, I, I've experienced, and I had no answer other than yes. And that's not my usual answer. I usually have a bunch of bullshit and all that. And, and so I sat there, and, and I started the program. I mean, I got to tell you how ignorant I was is you walk from the reception area up to the treatment place, and there's a staircase going up. And I asked her, are these the steps? The 12 steps? <laughs> no, Paul, not the 12 steps. Um, well, my brother had gone through the same place. He had worked anyway. So, um, and, and, and I went to uh, uh, my first meeting was that night in, in, in that facility. And I'd never been to an AA meeting before and, and I uh, didn't know what, there was, what it was like. And I sat in a room with a lot of people that were alumni from that facility and the people that were then in that facility. And, you know, I was, I was afraid. I was scared because I, I felt my life was going to be changing and I didn't know what to do and I didn't know who I was going to be and I didn't know how I was going to do it. And, and I had a lot of uncomfort that night. And, and so this guy gets up and he's going to share and he's a, he's a black uh, Baptist minister who's a janitor during the week. And that's what he says. And I go, man, I got nothing in common with this guy. You know, I got nothing that we're going to be able to talk about, share about. And he started talking about his experience and he started talking about not wanting to drink or use and doing it anyway. And I was blown away by that because I've had that sensation for almost 20 years. 
And I'd never told a soul that I felt that way. And here's this guy who's openly talking about it. And he talked about having a spiritual program of action that helped him lose the obsession to drink or use. And I man, I wanted that. I really wanted that. And and I didn't know how to get it. So at the end of his talk, he, he, he said the topic uh, tonight's going to be surrender. And then he pointed and, uh, and he pointed and he said, you stand up. And uh, he said, are, are, are you ready to surrender? And I told him, man, I've never surrendered to anything in my life. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a warrior. And he said, how's that work for you, Paul? And I said, it hasn't. I said, tell me what to do. And he said, announce yourself as an alcoholic and surrender to the program of recovery. And I did. And I got to tell you, that moment I did that, I had a feeling of relief that I've never felt in my entire life. And I know that's not everybody's story, but it is definitely mine. That, that when I surrendered, and I knew I had surrendered to do something different in my life, I felt an incredible sense of relief. I would like to report to you that I did everything right in that recovery center after that, and it's all been great. That, that wouldn't be my story. I, I almost got thrown out of the center uh, two weeks later when I lied to them about having a sponsor. You had to get a sponsor, and, and I didn't feel like I needed one because I was smart and uh, a little bit older and better looking than everybody. And so when they asked me about a sponsor, I told me I did. And, and they said, what's his name? They wrote, Bob. And they wrote it down. And then a week later, they said, how's Bob? I go, who's Bob? And they said, you're, you're a sponsor, and if you don't get a sponsor by the weekend, you're out. So I went and got a sponsor. And, and, and uh, that sponsor is still my sponsor today. And um, he took me through the steps of recovery. And it's been an incredible journey for me because – what he has done is shown me how to be vulnerable, how to be honest, how to drop the mask and be myself. And, hey, I'm just another guy trying to get through this. And, and I'm not special and I'm not unique. And I wasn't the tough guy and I wasn't the bad guy and I wasn't the best drinker. All that stuff that I'd always thought, just irrelevant. It's not true. And so um, I, um, I try and work a program of recovery today. I've had some incredible experiences in, in AA. I... I don't have time for all of them, but I mean, it, so I still go to the mountains. I love being in the mountains. And two years ago, I was in Nepal climbing a mountain, and me and a Sherpa, and um, and and a storm hit, and, and we got uh, caught in a blizzard up over twenty one thousand feet, and three days, nothing but just brutal. It was like a movie. I mean, thirty degrees below zero, eighty not eighty mile winds, twelve feet of snow, just. And we survived. We I survived because of that guy, you know. But but um, uh, we climbed down and. Uh, and a bunch of people had died in that storm. It was on all the international news. Forty people perished, most of them young people, and most of them not up high, just around the base of the mountain that we're trekking. And and it really was the hardest thing I'd felt emotionally in recovery. I I I, I didn't know what the feeling was, but it was really bad. And so I, I took a helicopter out of the mountains and and I went back to Kathmandu and I I, I go to the hotel I'm staying at and I asked the guy at the desk if he knows there's an AA meeting. You know, Kat and I do. I know there were, but I, because I'd been to one, but I had asked him if there was one that night, if he could find out. And he said, yeah, he said, I'll call the, the central office. And, you know, calling the central office and Kat and do is some guy's cell phone, you know, picks it up. So, um, they said, there's no AA meeting tonight. That's in English. Um, there's one two nights from now, but, um, he asked for your name and where you're staying. I said, uh, did you get me? He said, yeah. I said, okay. So I go up to my room, take a shower. I prayed and, and I'm, I'm going to go out because I'm going to eat. And, and I was really out of sorts. And I don't know if I was going to drink, but I was really, I never felt as vulnerable as I had right then. And I go downstairs. I'm walking out the door and the guy from the front desk goes, hey, excuse me, excuse me. He said, that guy's here for you. And I said, I, I don't know anybody. And he said, here, and this guy stood up and, and the AA guy had sent the guy over. This guy was traveling from New Zealand climber named Jeremiah 
He had six months of sobriety and wanted to drink. And so Jeremiah and I went out and we walked the streets of Kathmandu and I told him my story and he told me his. And we didn't have a book and we didn't have a meeting. We didn't have our sponsors, but we had two alcoholics talking to each other. And it saved me that night and it saved him that night. And what an incredible gift. I got to tell you, I, I, I didn't think about myself or my problems or what had happened or where I was for, for a few hours. And it was just a great way to try and decompress for me to stay sober and stay in the moment. So the, the, the program is just incredible. So I, um, all right, I got about 20 more minutes. Oh, no, um, let me talk about the nice step a little bit because I, I, you know, and I went through the four step and, you know, I lied to the guy about my four step. You know, he asked me, well, Paul, what about prostitutes? I go, what about him? He goes, you got to put him in there. Anyway, so I had to go back and redo it. So I did that. Um, But we finally got through. We got the ninth step, and and my hardest thing with the ninth step was was my children, because I had done a lot of damage. Don't let anybody ever tell you that you can't abuse your children if you don't hit them. You know, I um, it's anyway. I so I I had a lot of guilt, a lot of mind. I didn't know what to do, and so I made my amends to my kids, and, and my eldest and my youngest accepted my amends and, and wanted to reestablish a relationship with me. And it was great. And, and I'm not great, but it took a long, it's taken a while, it's taken years, but, but it's better than it was. And, and it's getting better. And they, we share a little bit now about what's going on with ourselves. My uh, middle son was the one that was kind of the most impacted by my disease, me and doing what I was doing and, and uh, really d- didn't want to accept me back into his life. And, you know, he was out of the house and, didn't need me and, and didn't want anything from me. And it was difficult. I got to tell you, I had a really, really hard time with that because I believed I'd gotten sober to try and help my family, to be a good family member. And now they didn't want me. And I wanted it fixed then. And my, thank God for sponsorship because my sponsor would meet with me and I'd be so amped up about it. What about the future? You know, and he'd go, Paul, are you all right right now? And he'd yell at me. And I'd say, yeah, I'm all right right now. He goes, that's it. You're all right now. And I meet him a week later and say, are you all right right now? And those nows added up and they started to be okay. And he said, just be available if your son needs you. And something came up with my son and he needed me. And and um, very mm-hmm. tangentially, we started to have a little bit of relationship. And and so last year he called me at the end of last year and he was in New York and, and uh, he told me he was going to get married. He was engaged and he's back there to ask this gal to marry him. And, uh, and he said, dad, please don't tell anybody. That um, that uh, that I'm doing this because I want I got it. We got to make sure we got it all straightened out. We haven't told her parents or mom or anything. And I said, okay. He goes, but Dad, I wanted to call you first. And I said, well, I appreciate that, bud. And he said, Dad, you're my hero. You're showing me how to do life. And I got to tell you, I was moved by that because that's the greatest gift I've been given in sobriety is a relationship with my kids. And um, he called me up two weeks ago. So his wedding is September 10th, and he called me up a. Uh, a week ago, and he said, hey, Dad, can you do me a favor? And I said, sure, how much do you need? No. And he said, uh, he said can you wear a tux to the wedding? And I said, uh, I said, you know, I look like a waiter when I come out of tuxedo, but I don't know if you need me. And he said, no, I really need you to do this because I want you to walk down the aisle with me. He said, because you've always been there for me, and I, need, I continue to need you. And I got to tell you, it's such a gift to have your child need you. And be there and be available to do that. And it's something I never had before. And it has nothing to do with me at all. It has to do with the program of recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I, I, I apologize. I shouldn't get emotional, but I do. And, and 
I was at a meeting this morning, my home group over in Marin County, and I, I, I'm old and I cry a lot during my share now, and they call me Old Man River, you know. <laughs> and um, I will tell you, even if they got a lot of sick individuals in that meeting, um, I pray for them a lot. They're career criminals, I think. But anyway, um, but so, but what my sponsor tells me today is it's okay to be emotional, it's okay to cry, it's okay to show your kids that you love them. And it's just one day at a time, and that's all it is. And and I try and I try and do that every day. So thank you for having me out. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.